In your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided, you'll find today's text on page 579. 579. Today's message is standing firm and dying well. Standing firm and dying well. Acts 7. We will read together verses 54 uh, through the end of the chapter. And then we'll ask for God's help and look at this text of Scripture. Again, Acts 7, we begin our reading in verse 54. Hear the word of the Lord. When they had heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, help us in these moments that we have together to consider your word. May we be taught by it. May we be changed by it through the help of your spirit. We offer these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's estimated that more than 50 million Christians died for their faith during the Dark Ages alone. It's estimated that a million Christians died for their faith when the communists seized China. Thousands have died as martyrs in revolutions and civil wars in Africa. And so estimates vary widely as to how many Christians have died for their faith. The estimates range in part because it depends on the definition of Christian and it depends on the definition of martyr. But it is safe to say that the number of Christians who have died for their faith since the time of Christ number in the multiple millions. Perhaps even, likely even, hundreds of millions when totaled up over the centuries. Polycarp was a leader in the early church in Smyrna. He led with wisdom and authority. He was known to be one who was a, 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 a polemic. He, he, he often argued against false teaching. At one point, he was called to answer for his faith under the threat of death itself. As he was called before the authorities... He was, he was told to renounce Christ. And he said this, 86 years have I been his servant. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul urged Polycarp to, to swear by Caesar and to escape punishment. He says, since you pretend to not know who I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am Christian. And if you wish to learn more about Christianity, I will be happy to make an appointment. The proconsul grew angry at this point. He says, do you not know that I have wild beasts waiting? I'll throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp was unrelenting 
He said, bring them on. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. He was then threatened with the stake and continued to stand fast and ultimately met his end as he was burned at the stake, remaining faithful, professing Christ. On and on and on the list could go of those who have sacrificed everything even up to death in order to faithfully preach the message of Jesus Christ. You remember that at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read this key verse, Acts 1-8, where Jesus says to his followers, you will be my witnesses. That word that is translated witness was originally just, just someone who testified as to what they had seen. But, but over time, that Greek word kind of shifted in meaning. And in fact, has made its way even, you've heard me mention this before, has even made its way into our language because that Greek word translated witnesses is our English word martyr. So committed were Christ's earliest witnesses. So committed they were they that they gave their very lives in order to witness for Christ. And so the meaning eventually became synonymous with those who would give their lives to witness to Christ. So here is Stephen, known probably most notoriously, most, most poignantly for being the first Christian martyr. Of course, you could argue that Christ was the first martyr, but following Christ, Stephen, the first one to give his very life for faith. How is it that when we read a passage like this, we can see a man who is so calm, so, so, so confident, so willing to lay down his life for the cause of Christ? And what can you and I learn about how we should live and even how we should be willing to die courageously for Christ? Well, I would, first of all, point you back to what we considered in the previous weeks when we considered Stephen's life, that you and I can live and die with courage. We can live and die confidently when we follow Christ's commands. And I'm not going to re-preach the message from a couple weeks ago, but you remember that we, we saw very clearly Stephen was a man of character. He was a man whose entire life testified as to the, the change, the transformation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a servant. He was faithful. He was winsome. He was the kind of man that, that you wanted to spend time with. He was highly respected because he had a testimony for Christ. And as we remind ourselves of that now when we watch his death, we're reminded that if you and I are to die well, we must live well. If we're to, if we're to die well, we, we must live well. And this is the kind of life that Stephen lived. We should be challenged with the servant's heart that we see in Stephen. We should be challenged with the notion that although he served those within the body of Christ, he was also eager to share the gospel with those who were without, even when he met with their disapproval. Stephen was a faithful preacher of the gospel. He was a faithful servant of others. And that testimony continued right up till his dying moment. So if we're going to live, or if we're going to die courageously, we must live courageously. We must be obedient to Christ's commands. 
So that's kind of looking back. But as we look now at this passage that is before us, we also learn that, that you and I can live and even die, if necessary, courageously. When we seek first Christ's approval. When we seek Christ's approval, we can live with, with courage. You see, when a sinner comes to faith, when he trusts in Christ, he trusts in Christ alone. This message is narrow. It is exclusive. Jesus alone is the way of salvation. He is the path to God. All other paths are the path of destruction. Well, that message of Christ is, is of no comfort to those who reject. It is not well received. In fact, it is quite the opposite many times. So look at the response of the Sanhedrin in verse 54. When they heard these things. Now, now what things are we talking about? Well, you remember that all of chapter seven, most of chapter 7 is his sermon. But in verse 51 is where he really applies the history of Israel to the Sanhedrin that he stands before. He calls them stiff-necked, uncircumcised, or heart. He says, you resist the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 52 that you killed the one who was foretold, this promised one, this Messiah who was sent, the one to whom all the Old Testament points, you have rejected him and you have killed him. Well, this is the response that we now see in verse 54. When they hear these things, they were, were cut to the heart. That's an idiomatic expression, meaning they were, they were poked they were made angry. What's, what, what Stephen said cut to the, the, very, the very innermost of their being and angered them greatly. And so then it says there in verse 54 as well, they, they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, this might not be a current cultural expression, but I think you can, you can, you can picture what's happening here. They are so angry, they are clenching their teeth at him. Right? You ever seen someone so angry that they're, they're baring their teeth? That's what's happening here. They, they stop their ears. They clench their teeth. They, they run at him. And the language that is here um, is, is not descriptive of a calm, deliberative body. This is a description of what we might call a lynch mob. They are angry with him. So they, they gnash him with the teeth. Verse, verse 57, notice, they, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They, they rant at him. And literally, the, the verb tense is, they were casting him out of the city and were stoning him. This is a process. Don't picture them picking up little pebbles and tossing them at Stephen to see what happens. Picture them throwing him off a cliff to a pit below where they grabbed boulders the size of cinder blocks and were hurling them down on his head. This is why they had to take off their outer cloaks, because this was hard work in the heat of the day. And so they laid aside their outer, outer cloaks and they set them down for safekeeping at the feet of a man named Saul, who we see referred to here as well. Yet, in the midst of all of this, Stephen is calm. He's looking into heaven, beholding Christ. He's on his knees, praying. Now, how could he have this kind of courage? How could he have this kind of resolve? 
Well, notice in verse 55, he being full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a a spirit-controlled man. God was at work in his heart. He was was a man of, of the Holy Spirit. And he says further that he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus. Stephen was looking to Jesus. He was looking first and foremost for the approval of of Christ. In verse 59, we see him calling on God. The reason that Stephen could stand with such courage was because he was seeking Christ's approval. And even though the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the day, those that were powerful, were, were, were angry with him, disapproved of him, he did not fear man. He sought Christ's approval. And we see this interesting note in verse 55. He says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And what? Jesus, what's the next word? Standing. Now that's interesting. You say, why is that interesting, Pastor? Well, because six times in the New Testament, we are told... Jesus is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and we are told in all six of those passages that his posture is what? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 8.1, for example. This is the point of what we've been saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. This is the only time in the New Testament that we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, there's been much ink spilled as to why this is, right? Could it be that Stephen is getting, should we call it a a standing ovation? That, That Jesus Christ, the Son, has now risen to his feet to welcome home the first martyr. We don't know, the text doesn't say, but I do find it terribly interesting that Jesus is standing in Stephen's vision at the right hand of the Father. That was the approval that Stephen sought first and foremost, was the approval of Jesus Christ. The one who had died for him, he now offers himself for And didn't Jesus warn his followers of this? I mean, didn't he tell them, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they cast you out for the Son of Man's sake? Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Now, now isn't this interesting? Stephen has just hearkened back to the fathers. And he's actually pointed to the Sanhedrin and says, you have done this. You and your fathers have rejected the messengers that came before. I mean, it's almost as if he's quoting Jesus here in a context when Jesus says, you'll be hated, you'll be reviled, you'll be rejected. But Stephen knows all too well that that means blessing. 
Rejoice, Jesus said. Leap for joy. I get to suffer for Jesus. Now, is that usually our attitude? <laughs> right? They call it martyr's complex. Oh, poor me. I had to suffer for Jesus. Somebody, somebody said something unkind to me today because, right? Well, Stephen clearly understands that there is joy. There is celebration when one has the opportunity to suffer for Jesus. Believers can be courageous when Christ is what matters. When Jesus is the one that we are seeking to please. When we are not seeking the approval of man, but we are seeking first and foremost to please our Savior. And so you and I can be courageous. We can be bold. We can be confident when Jesus is what matters to us and his approval. We see further in this passage that we can live courageously. We can even, if necessary, die courageously when we emulate Christ's model. Did you notice Stephen's words here? And did they remind you of anything? Look at verse 59. Stephen says what? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does this remind you of words you've heard and read before? Right? Jesus says what? Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. By the way, if I can go off in the weeds for just a quick second. You see Stephen praying to Jesus. You only pray to God. A couple very nice chaps stopped by my house yesterday to share with me the message, the true message of Jehovah. I won't tell you what group they were from. And we had a very nice discussion about how their Savior was not qualified to be a Savior because he was not fully God. You, you can't go anywhere in Scripture without bumping into the deity of Christ. And here it is, just, just right here in the midst of this passage. Here Stephen is praying to Jesus because he knows Jesus to be God. Just a little footnote there. So Stephen says, Lord Jesus, just as Jesus had cried, Father, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, what does he say? He says, Lord, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Do those words remind you of anything that Jesus said? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I mean, even as he dies, Stephen is emulating Jesus. He is dying like Jesus died. My friends, you and I can be courageous with whatever we face, knowing that Jesus has suffered on our behalf, that he has gone first, that he has led, and that he has conquered even death itself. And again, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. Right? Jesus warns his disciples, you know this is coming. They hate me. They're going to hate you too. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus tells his followers to expect the rejection of the world. They will hate you. You will suffer. And Stephen knows this. 
And he faces death itself courageously because he's following the example of Christ. He's emulating Christ's model even in his death. We see in this passage, lastly, that you and I can, can live confidently. We can, we can even die courageously when we are assured of Christ's continuing work. So as Stephen dies, he is praying. Now, we, we highlighted in this video again how this small vignette fits into the larger picture. And as God writes a beautiful story about the gospel going out from Jerusalem, he includes foreshadowing. All right? Did you see it? So here we are in verse uh, in chapter 7. And right in the middle of this chronology, almost as if it's just kind of stuck in there as a footnote, we meet this, this young man in verse 58, and his name is what? His name is Saul. Saul. Right now, why is that included? Well, if you know the book of Acts, you know why that little, oh, by the way, the guy that kept their coats was Saul. Because that's going to become very significant. Even right here in the very next chapter, chapter 8, which opens with Saul. We're now in a transitional uh, point in the, in the narrative of Acts. So here's this first mention of this, this young man named Saul. We probably are most accustomed to calling him Paul. Um, some say his name changed. The, the, the more accurate reality is that Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Greco-Roman name. And so as he became the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And calls himself the apostle of the Gentiles. He increasingly became known as Paul. Uh, be that as it may, we see here Saul Paul um, being very integrally involved in the taking of the life of the very first Christian martyr. Now, if you look at Romans 16, 7... You don't need to turn there, but what you see is him referring to to uh, clansmen, fellow clansmen is the word there, who were in Christ before he was, which is interesting. It's very likely that Paul had believing extended family. Might have, might he have even had extended family that were followers of Jesus at this point, we don't know. It is interesting that, that Saul has family come to faith in Christ while he is yet persecuting Christians. So that's kind of the background of this guy. Um, we do know that Paul, and I'm not trying to make this a whole lesson on Paul, but just kind of some background here. Uh, we do know that at some point he became a member of the Sanhedrin, this very body who condemns, well, it really didn't condemn Stephen, they just went after him, but had condemned Peter before and Christ before him. And so Saul becomes part of this body. Was he already at this point one of the young members of the Sanhedrin? Well, he would have had to have been 30 years old, if that were the case, to be qualified to be a member of this body. But regardless, he was very closely connected because you remember that he was a student of Gamaliel, we met him already. He was kind of the, the driving force. He was the overseer, 
kind of the chairman of the board, if you will, of, of this assembly. So here is Paul watching all of this happen. And Stephen prays in verse 60, what? Lord, do not charge them with this sin. In other words, just like Jesus said, forgive them. Did God answer that prayer? In fact, he did. In the following chapters, we're going to see God do a work in this young man who was standing there to draw him to himself, to convert him miraculously, to forgive him, even of the sin of stoning Stephen. I would just like to point out that this was a very significant event in Paul's life, Saul's life, that God would use. And it could very well be stated that Paul was the singular answer to Stephen's prayer. The fact is we see this repeated over and over and over again in church history. That the the death of a saint, the martyrdom of a saint, inspires, it motivates, it is used by God to draw others to repentance. I said before, uh, sometime back when we were working our way through another passage in the book of Acts, that, that willingness to die for something alone does not prove it true. But if it is true, we must be willing to die for it. And if Christianity, if following Christ is true, what better example, what what greater megaphone can there be than someone who is willing even to lay down their own life for the cause of Christ? We see in church history over and over and over again. And so the early church leader, Tertullian, said it this way, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we do not seek persecution. We do not seek opposition. We wish to avoid it if we can. But the reality is that the gospel will be opposed. And there is this this way in which God uses persecution to amplify the message of the church. Powerful as it is. There is a story told of Forty martyrs of Sebast, they're sometimes called the Holy Forty, who went together as a band to their death in 320 for the Christian faith. The ruler at that time ordered that those who profess Christ, even within his own army, must be killed. And so their military leader ordered them marched out on the ice that they might freeze to death. And he invited them to return to the shore upon upon denouncing Christ. It was very simple. You go out in the middle of the ice and you will die. If you wish to renounce Christ, you may come back to shore. The story goes that of these, these 40 soldiers, the night wore on, The song that they sang grew weaker and weaker. And finally, one of them trudged his way back towards shore. The song changed from 40 soldiers to 39 soldiers. So inspired was their leader 
with their patient, fervent following of Christ, that he himself went out on the ice to return the number to 40. And they have become part of Christian stories for centuries. Um, as is the nature of ancient tales, some of, the, some of the details may not all be accurate. But we do know that of these 40, there were multiple more who sacrificed themselves for Christ, who were willing to give up their own life. The classic early Christian work, Fox's Book of Martyrs, delineates one after another those who gave their name for Christ. In modern day, perhaps the most known martyrs in modern times are those that sacrificed their life um, on the shores of Ecuador, of an Ecuadorian river. The most known are perhaps um, Jim Elliott um, and Nate Saint. There were three others who died alongside of them. They had made overtures to a native tribe and believed that they were being well received. And upon landing and trying to take the gospel to these natives, were tragically killed by ten of the warriors that they met there. Of course, the part of the story that you don't hear was that after their death in January of 1956, the gospel continued. And eventually, those very warriors who took their lives themselves came to faith in Christ. Again, the story could be repeated over and over. God's people who are willing to do all, to give all for the cause of the gospel, actually being the the fuel by which the gospel is, is flamed. So what is the application as we think about the death of the first Christian martyr? Well, there are many ways that we could apply it to ourselves, but a few that come to mind. First of all, is the gospel of supreme importance to us? Is the gospel so important that we are willing to lay down even our very lives to spread the gospel? You know, in our comfortable American version of Christianity, we tend to think that, you know, if we meet opposition, uh, we must be doing it wrong. Absolutely not. Now, certainly we shouldn't seek opposition. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be personally offensive, but the, the reality is that the truth of Christ is offensive. Is giving the gospel to others more important to you and I than being frowned at, being called names, having a door closed in our face, being mocked, losing our job, even death itself? How important is the message of the gospel? Or are we dissuaded by telling the truth of Christ to others by so much as a smirk? Well, when we look at someone like Stephen and all of those who have followed down through the centuries in his example, may we be emboldened. May we realize that the gospel is of supreme importance. How would you react, for example, if someone said, you know, I believe that God has called my family and I to be missionaries to, to such and such a field. And you know that field is known for violence against Christians. 
would we be quick to, to say, or, or, or even if we don't say, to think, well, I'm not so sure that's God's will. Right? That, that seems like a closed door to me. I don't know that you can... There are many other places that you could go and give the gospel and be well-received. Why that one? Because the gospel is that important and God has called us to reach the peoples of the earth. How would we react in our heart if we knew that Christian was going to a foreign field where he would be not well-received, would preach the gospel perhaps for a lifetime and not see conversions? perhaps even be killed. Here in a few weeks, um, July 14th to be exact, we have a gentleman coming to present a ministry from an organization called Frontline Missions. The, the mission is well-named because their slogan is Advancing the Gospel in the World's Difficult Places. They are on the front lines of mission, taking the gospel to to what are sometimes called creative access countries. We used to, in the old days, call those closed mission fields. Taking the gospel to the very front battle lines. Christian, are you and I bold? Are we bold in the same way that Stephen was bold? Do Do we... Just talk the talk, or do we live consistently with that? Even if it is a dangerous, treacherous path, even a deadly path. And then as we apply Stephen's death to ourselves, I wonder how well do you and I do praying for our enemies, as Christ has told us to do? For the enemies of the cross. Do you and I lift them up in prayer and ask for God's work in their heart, or do we do we write them off and brush them aside? How do we treat or think about, or pray for those that would do us harm or mistreat us in some way. Stephen prays, Father, forgive them. Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. May we this morning understand that you and I can live, and even if necessary, die courageously. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. As we have considered this this morning, we pray that you would continue to use the message of Stephen, even in our own hearts and our own understanding, weave it deep within our souls that we must give the gospel to others. Just a moment, I'm going to conclude in prayer, but before I do, I want to give you a moment to quiet your hearts before the Lord. In this time that we have together to confess sin and to commit to Him in accordance with how the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart. Let's pray together.